Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. If you happen to be new to our church, this is your first Sunday with us. My name is Dave. It's my privilege to have served as a pastor here since 1995 when our church was founded And uh, I can't believe it's been that long. I was telling someone recently how long I've been here, and I couldn't believe what I was saying. It's been a really long time, and it's been a joy most of the way through. (laughs) I'm sure most of us can say that about our lives, right? Well, we've come to the last Sunday of the year, and it's been our tradition for a number of years now that on the last Sunday of the year, we do what we call Recommitment Sunday. And if you are not a Christ follower, Recommitment Sunday is an invitation for you to take stock of your spiritual condition and think about any challenges you want to accept, any, um, any things you want to do to be more intentional about your spirituality in the coming year. You've probably been to church before and you've heard some things said about Jesus. Maybe this is your invitation to say, let me investigate him once and for all, really get to know him a little bit and make a decision. If you are a Christ follower, this is a Sunday where we call you to think about the year that just passed and the year that's coming. And I know between, uh, Pastor Frank said it this morning in prayer, uh, between um, December 31st and January 1st, nothing really happens except that in our minds, a newness kind of takes hold. Um, It's a new year. It's so arbitrary, but it's so important for us to have those arbitrary turnings of the page because we need things to end and new things to begin in order to stay sane. And if if you are a Christ follower, this is a Sunday for you to take stock of where you are in your following of Jesus and make a recommitment of your heart to him. Typically, I give a number of challenges, but this year I felt strongly convicted to give you one single-minded challenge, one invitation for the year. And so the title of the message this morning, appropriately enough, is The One Thing. If you've been to our church for a while, you know I am the least creative sermon titler who ever preached. So all my sermon titles are like painfully self-explanatory. This is about the one thing. (laughs) I'm such a dummy. This is about the one thing that matters the most. We're going to look at Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. And these are verses that are pretty familiar to anyone who's grown up in the church, been around for a while. Even if you haven't grown up in the church, you've probably heard these two sisters mentioned in some context, just living in America. It's a story of two sisters named Martha and Mary, and a time when they hosted a dinner party in their home in honor of Jesus. Here's what the passage says. Now, as they, they meaning Jesus and his entourage, were traveling along, he entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, 
You are worried and bothered about so many things. But only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. You know, I want to draw from this familiar story of two sisters who could not be more different, and yet who were both driven largely by the same loves, the same loyalties, but they experienced and expressed it very differently. How many of you have siblings? Excuse me. Isn't it weird if you have siblings to observe that you came from the same genetic stock, grew up in the same household, in the same socioeconomic demographic niche, and yet you probably look at your sibling and think, we could not be more different in some ways. Right? Maybe some of you are like, no, we're exactly the same. But most siblings, well, I not, I, I, we have four children. I look at all four of my kids. Each one is precious to me. Each one is so different. I thought after a while, like four of them, sooner or later, we're going to clone somebody. They're going to start repeating. But they're each so different in so many ways. And these two sisters were really different. And yet it's important to know that there were some things they really did have in common. I want to look at what made them different and issue you an invitation that I think is going to be critically important for your spiritual well-being in the coming year. A lot of preachers preaching on Mary and Martha have been unduly harsh towards Martha. They talk about Martha like she's the devil, like, oh, don't be a Martha. In fact, you even probably have used Martha like a derogatory term. You're such a Martha. You're such a Martha. Uh, Or you might have said, man, being a Martha right now. You know, Martha was not a bad person. This story, this encounter that Jesus had with these two sisters was not about denigrating. It wasn't about criticizing Martha's bent towards hard work. It was about elevating Mary's bent towards worship. There is a place for hard work. We need the diligent. God knows This world would not function without the doers. Amen? Those of you who are task-driven, doers, diligent, always on the move, like sharks, if I stand still, I'll die. I've got to always be doing something. The world needs people like you because it also has people like me. People like me are diligent because we have to be, but I could sit in front of a screen for 80 hours without going to the bathroom. I mean, I am a lazy man trapped in a diligent man's life. And so there is a place for hard work, for diligence. And Jesus has nothing negative to say about that value, that drive. Martha was a good woman, but she'd made a lesser choice that day, and she needed to be confronted on it and invited to make a better one. Her sister Mary, and we've all had probably someone like this in our life, we we wish was a little more, could you please help Do I have to always ask, could you please just volunteer, take initiative, look around and see that someone's struggling with a heavy load? Could you help out? And we probably have someone like that who's just always in their own head, always in their own heart. I'm just having a moment here by myself. Yeah, look around once in a while. Help. And so we probably naturally, just based on temperament and personality, identify with, sympathize with one of these two sisters more naturally. You know how we had Team Edward and Team, what was that whole um, Twilight thing? Jacob? I don't know. We probably have Team Martha and Team Mary. And I would love to just see a quick show. How many of you are Team Martha? Like, seriously, get busy. Don't just sit around in your own head. How many of you are Team Mary? What's, where's the fire, dude? Calm down. So some of you didn't raise your hand. Maybe you're Team Lazarus. In, in the grave, 
That's your brother. He's dead in the grave and needs to be resurrected. I don't know. But <laughs> you're one of those two, probably. You're sympathizing with one of them. And I want you to notice something. This dinner party would never have happened except for Martha. It was Martha, and she's probably the older sister and very likely a widow. She's always mentioned first when the two of them are named together. And she, it, it's referred to as her home. So it's probably the home she shared with her husband. She was widowed and now the, the mistress of the house. And she takes the initiative. She knows that Jesus and his crew are coming to town. It requires a fairly large home to host that many people. And so she opens up her home. Now, any of you who have ever opened your home to a crowd of 12 or more, any one of you who has ever hosted CG in your house knows that the aftermath of your CG coming to your house is chaos. Stuff is broken. Stuff is missing. Stuff is whatever. And you know that it's always an intentional choice, an act of service to host people in your home. You may delight in it, you may enjoy it, but it's never, ever easy, is it? It's always hard. And yet Martha, because of the way God made her, was willing to open her home. That's really important to affirm. There is a place for people wired like Martha, and without them, so many things simply would not occur. You can picture, then, the scene. The whole house is abuzz with activity and anticipation because the most honored guest in their village of Bethany was in their house. He was the guest speaker at the massive conference. Francis Chan is coming to speak at this conference, and guess what? He's staying in your bedroom. What? It's amazing. I love that guy. So the whole household is buzzing. Martha's hustling everywhere. If you've ever, if you're a natural host or hostess, you know that one of the things you delight in is anyone could just order KFC and go, here, here's some food. Let's talk. But a host, a hostess, a true one, puts their best into every little touch. And they delight when the guests, the, the more discriminating guest, looks and goes, hold on a second. Did you hand calligraphy every one of these name cards? That's crazy. And the host is like, I sure did. Mm-hmm. And most people don't notice, but the ones that notice, they delight the heart of the host, don't they? Because you have gone the extra mile. You've done every, every little touch. You've paid attention to it. And when the guests notice, something in your heart comes alive. And that's the way so many Marthas are driven, is they work so hard, but they yearn for some recognition of how hard it is to live this way. How intentional you have to be, to be a Martha. And so Martha keeps glancing over at Jesus. Just once, she wants him to go, Martha, these hors d'oeuvres, amazing. I can't believe you put all this together in like three hours. She just wanted one glance, one acknowledgement, something that says all your hard work is appreciated. But every time she looks over, what does she see? A group of lazy people sitting around the living room, like just waiting to be served. And there's her sister Mary, who also lives there. She's, and instead of Jesus looking over at the hardworking Martha, he's just gazing intently at Mary, speaking to her, opening up his heart. And she's like, what the heck is this? Sure, I get it. The rest of the guests are our guests. But Mary, doggone it, you live here. You're lazy, irresponsible, shiftless girl. When are you going to act like this is your house and stop joining the party and start joining the staff? 
Martha's tension is rising because there's something inherently unfair about this situation. And some of you, even though you know how the story ends, if you're right there in it, you'd be like, Martha, you need to go say something to that Mary. Seriously. That's ridiculous. Some of you are feeling it right now, aren't you? What the heck is, why does Mary get rewarded for being like this? Mary wasn't trying to be irresponsible. I'm sure she could hear the activity in the house and some voice inside her was nagging her, like, you really should be helping Martha. This is messed up and you're going to hear about this later. Oh man, are you going to get the scolding of the century when all these people have left and she doesn't have to worry about how she's coming off? So you, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know that feeling when your mom's going to crush you once the guests leave? <laughs> You're like, oh boy. I'm sure she noticed all of it. But she could not tear herself away. Mary wasn't trying to focus on Jesus. She couldn't stop. Something about, and you can see it even in the grammar of this verse. In the Greek, the the word translated listening is in the imperfect tense. There's a suggestion there that she wasn't just "Eh, listening. She was listening, listening, listening. Every word she was hanging on, she could not stop hearing this man. Something about him, the way he talked, the way he looked at people, just his tone, his view of the, re- of the world, the reality, it compelled her and she could not break away from him. Even if the house were on fire, she wouldn't get up until Jesus got up. Have you ever been captured by someone or something so much that the rest of the world became a pinprick of light, just zoomed away. Have you ever been in that weird, where it's like six hours past and you can't believe it? Have any of you ever been lost in a moment like that? There's something about moments like that that reveal a truth about the human spirit. And that is that we were created to worship. I remember seeing footage of my daughter Zoe and her friends when they went to the One Direction concert. And it wasn't just them. It was every prepubescent girl in the stadium was just out of their stinking mind. No cue cards needed to be held up. Freak out now. Go unconscious. Scream like you're on fire. They were just going nuts. And when I see things like that, It points to something. There is something weird in us. In Ecclesiastes 3.11, I repeat this verse often because it's so true. It's probably the reason why we're like this. It says that God has deposited eternity into the human heart. In other words, we are stuck in a finite world with boundaries and imperfections and limits. But God has deposited into us in the depths of our hearts a capacity for, a yearning of something much bigger than this world can deliver. So there is this feeling of, how do I say, incompleteness, longing, dissatisfaction that will always be our companion if we're alive and paying attention. There's a sense that this world, even on its best moments, cannot be as good as it can get. There's always more. I mean, Look at people who have wealth you can only dream of. Beauty they can, you can only dream of. Power you can only dream of. And yet they are not satisfied either. They don't stop. They don't rest. They continue to push for more. Everything they get makes them hungrier for more because something has been deposited in us we have to pay attention to. That thing that drives us to worship 
is an honest expression of a capacity, a longing bigger than this world. It drives some of our best work because it drives us past half measures and compromises. It makes us push for perfection. There is a longing for perfection in each of us that needs to be expressed. Now, we're not like that with everything. You know, I, I'm, I'm not like that with food and things like that. If I'm eating or preparing food, good enough is good enough. But when it comes to writing a sermon, I will sit up at night and agonize for an hour over how to phrase one transition. It's just the neurotic nature of something when you're passionate about it, when you really care about it, when it's not just about whether people will be satisfied, but whether you will be satisfied You see in yourself a drive, a standard that makes no sense to anyone else. I used to be very OCD, and then, you know, marriage and children cured me of that that condition. But before, when I was single and I could control my environment, I was insane. Like, I would buy cases of Gatorade and put it in the fridge, and all the labels had to be turned the same way. I'd sit there in front of the fridge and say, okay. And, you know, when you see that, everyone goes, why are you doing that? It's stupid. You're crazy. Why? And you go, I don't know, but I need it to be this way. I need to see that visual perfection. Something in me demands it. What I'm trying to say is God has put that longing for perfection into us. It's what drives worship. When we see someone really beautiful or gifted or kind or whatever, when you see somebody, for example, a mentor who gives you tremendous, profound wisdom, and after you receive it, you're like, my gosh, you've blown my mind. You've changed the way I think about things. You've really helped me. When you get that kind of guidance from someone, it awakens something in you, a deep admiration, a yearning to identify with, to give something. That's worship. It's that yearning for perfection. Whenever we see anyone who approaches perfection, who is extraordinary. Why do we love Michael Jordan and LeBron James and Venus Williams and all these people? We love them because they're good at something. That's it. Most of them are horrible human beings. I would not be friends with Michael Jordan. Not on a personal level. I would love to learn how to play basketball from him. I would love some of his money, but I would not want to be that guy's friend. Everything I've read about him as a person... Uh Uh-uh. Not a good guy. But why do we love him? Because he's transcendent. He has done something at a level most of us could never touch. And it makes us think, oh, we are... Have you ever seen YouTube, those videos, People Are Awesome? I can't stop watching those dumb things. And I'm watching, I'm like, we are awesome. Oh, my gosh. We can do crazy stuff, we people. We primates, we can do insane things. We can almost fly. And when we see someone who is transcendent, it touches something deep within us. It tickles that thing that says, there is more. We yearn for this to be real, for all of us to be this perfect. When we see somebody we're tempted to worship, someone who's so transcendent, we just want to give them a claim. The problem with that is every person that points at perfection is still imperfect. And at the end of the day, the shine will wear off. We've all experienced it, right? 
I just mentioned how my youngest was crazy about One Direction. Totally over it now, right? Yeah. That group, which once made your knees weak. (laughs) Zane just threw me his sweaty towel. I will touch my face with it every day. Guess what? It's going to go in the laundry and then eventually to goodwill. The luster always wears off. Maybe some of you came to this church being like, oh my gosh, this church is awesome. It's so different than the church I was at before. I love it, I love it. And then somebody looks at you the wrong way. Someone stops saying hi to you. Some, and something you go, oh, it's just another church like all of them. They suck. And like, like Goldilocks, we just keep going, someday I'll find the perfect place. And that's normal. That's expected because we're built for that. We yearn for perfection. Here's the problem. We are built, created to long for perfection, but consigned to live in an imperfect world. Do you hear me? We long for perfection. That is our standard, our dream, and yet we are forced to live in a world that is full of imperfection. And that creates tension because I want everything to be better. But the longer I look, even the things that once grabbed my heart, I realize are just fallen slobs like me. They're better at something, but they're still slobs. And where is the reality, that full expression of this sense I have in me that there's more? I know there's more. I know it. This can't be the best there is. This is why what Mary did that day is so important. Because we yearn for perfection, but we live in a world that is so imperfect. It is so important to regularly gaze at that which is perfect. If we don't, we will lose hope. If all you do for hope is look around at other people and other institutions in an imperfect world, you will live in a perpetual state of disappointment. That's just what, what it is. You'll always feel like, well, where is the perfect church? Where are the perfect friends? When am I going to be perfect? If you look in the mirror, if you look at other people, if you look at institutions, and you're looking for hope in this world, you will not find it for more than a year at a time. Anything new, anything dazzling can hold your imagination for a while, but sooner or later, the shine will be gone. You probably came to this church from another church and you were in a dreamland for a while. You may move on from this church to another church and find that you'll be in a dreamland for a while. But the honeymoon always ends, doesn't it? Married people, can we get an amen? The honeymoon always ends. Real love, real commitment takes over, we hope. But you can't ride the tsunami of passion without effort forever. The same thing that drives a good marriage drives good worship. It is to gaze deeply into the heart of the one you love. Realize how much is there that you so easily overlook. I know people who are always depressed, always disappointed, not clinically, but because they're just discouraged. Everywhere they look, imperfection. The cure for that is worship. It's to sit for long stretches of time and look at the only perfect being who has ever lived. Everyone else sucks, man. Everybody else is less, below, subpar, terrible, faulty. But Jesus is not. And I find that a strange thing happens. The more I worship, 
the more worshipful my heart becomes. It's the same way in marriage. It's the same way with parenting. Sometimes your kids will frustrate you in this moment. One of the reasons I religiously watch old videos and look at old photos of my kids is I remember how precious they are to me. Before they did this or before they did that, I remember before they earned anything from me, how much I treasured these kids. And when I look regularly at those things, I see them and not just their latest behavior, their latest choice, their latest words. I see them. And it tempers my reactionary nature. I think the same is true of God. Maybe God once was great in your eyes. Do you remember a period in your life where you naturally worshiped God? You were delighting. Every time your favorite Christian song came on the radio, you sang along at the top of your lungs. You couldn't wait to open your journal and your Bible in the morning. You wanted to give him your very best. You're like, I don't care if you call me to the deepest, darkest part of the world. I will go wherever you send me. Do you remember a time when you felt like that about Jesus? He hasn't changed one bit. What probably happened along the way for most of us is we started glancing at him rather than gazing at him. Maybe you're at a place where you are disappointed not just in people and in churches, but even in God himself. Maybe you've hit a low point in your life where what you feel is, well, okay, I I get it that people will let me down, churches will let me down, families and governments will let me down, society will let me down, but now God himself has let me down. I'm disappointed with Jesus. Where do I go with that? I get how you can end up there. I think Martha was in that place. See, Martha had a sister called Mary who wasn't hustling in the kitchen but was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. Oh, nice for you, Mary. And she's watching this, and she's just heating up. Here's Martha, distracted. You know what that word distracted means in the original language? It means literally to be pulled away in different directions. Like, like an animal with strong jaws is dragging you away. You're like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Have you ever been in that state of frenzied mind where you're like, you can't relax because as soon as you stop this from burning, that's burning, and you just, you, you just want to scream. If you're really old, you know that feeling. Calgon, take me away. You got to be like my age or more to know what I'm talking about. That moment where you just, you want to pull the alarm and go, time out, universe. Get off of me. It's too much. I'm going crazy. And maybe Jesus is part of that great disappointment. Where were you? She's looking over at Jesus and thinking to herself, I'm sure, and this is not in the Bible, so don't quote me on it, but this is what I imagine in my redeemed imagination is happening in Martha's mind. Some religious leader, huh? Here's my irresponsible sister. She's tearing this family apart with her negligence. You would think the Son of God would at least be able to say something. I mean, it's ridiculous. I expect him to be faithful. Better than that, just look at her and just go, Mary, Martha, just scrub a dish, something, you know. But he's enraptured with her just like she's enraptured with him. He is talking to her, not at all bothered by how lazy she's being, how irresponsible and negligent. 
And after a while, Martha, who is glancing over at Jesus, is glaring at Jesus. Mary is gazing at Jesus. Martha is glancing and then glaring. I'm trying to use some G words here. I'm proud of myself. Do you get the difference between these two sisters? One of them is disappointed with Jesus. The other one is captivated by Jesus. And the whole while, Jesus is not changing. He is the same. It's their point of view that drives the way they experience this man. See, Martha believes that what's happening here is a dinner party. That's why she's so frenzied, because she believes the most important thing is for Jesus to be like, that was an amazing dinner party. Thank you so much. I have not eaten like that since the last time I stayed at the Four Seasons Jerusalem. You are amazing. And she would be able to say at the end of that evening, I did my job. But because she's not getting enough help, and she's so distracted by the unfairness of what's happening, she begins to lose her cool. Finally, when she can't take it any longer, she snaps. She rushes in, and she confronts She's He's in mid-sentence teaching. You can imagine how awkward. If there was a movie of this, the record scratch would happen right here. She goes, excuse me, I have something to say. You know, I've been hustling around in the kitchen, and my little sister's sitting right here, and I thought you were a spiritual man, a godly leader. Don't you even care that she's acting like this? Doesn't it even bother you? In other words, what she's saying is, you don't seem to care about the right stuff. You seem to enable all the wrong stuff. And if you did care, why don't you say something to her? Say to her what I want to say to her. And she's now in full spaz mode, okay? Just freaking out. It takes a lot for the hostess to interrupt the guest of honor in mid-sentence and make a spectacle of herself confronting him in front of the guests. That is not a small event. That was a huge, like she reached a boiling point, and I love the way Jesus responds to her. If, if it were most of us, we'd probably be like, Martha, remember yourself, woman. Seriously. But here's what Jesus, and it, he repeats her name, but every scholar is in agreement. This is a gentle repetition. It's not, Martha, Martha. Like, stop spazzing. It's Martha, Martha. You know how sometimes you have to say a person's name twice when they're in full spaz mode? You just got to hug them and go, hey, hey. There's a sound I make to my family when I'm calming them down. I hate it. It's the sound of a pigeon, a dove. I just go, they hate that sound. It's my signal that you are freaking out and you need to be just, I think it works though. I think that's what Jesus is doing to Martha. He's like, Martha, shh, Martha, Martha, look at me. You know, I appreciate what you're doing here. I get why you're doing it. But I didn't come here for a good meal. There are restaurants for that. I didn't come here for a feast. I know that's what you believe is your job, but that's not why I came. I came for a visit. And so far, I visited only with your sister and not with you. See, the nature of my visit, Martha, is not to enjoy a good meal and to spread rumors about your amazing hostessing on the society page tomorrow morning. 
The purpose of my visit is to visit with you. To be in your house where you live and speak truth into your heart. To tell you what I see in you. To reveal things that will unravel tensions in your life. The reason Mary is so captivated is because I'm saying things that touch her where she lives. That only God could tell her and she could receive. And you've missed out on all of that. I appreciate what you're doing, Martha, but Mary has made the more important choice here. Because in this scenario, only one thing is necessary. When a person comes to visit you, the only thing necessary is to visit them back. That's all they want. I've had the experience traveling around for ministry of staying in people's homes, and I've always appreciated that. I like it when I receive hospitality. But some hosts are such busybodies that I feel like I'm just staying in a bed and breakfast. I hardly get 30 minutes to sit down with them and just visit. And I wish they would stop taking care of me and start being with me. They're so bent on serving that they don't want to visit. And yet the heart of God is this. What was the greatest command Jesus gave? when asked, what does God want from us? It was to love God with everything we have. That's the greatest command given to us. So he says to Martha, Mary has made the best choice today. She understood what was most important. She's doing it, and I'm not going to take that away from her. I'm also not going to take away from you the value of your diligence, but I invite you now, Martha, come join us. Stop the fussing. I don't need it. Sit down, join your sister, make the better choice. When we are so focused on the things we do for God and not as focused on gazing into the face of God, the work we do will eventually create bitterness in us. I'm going to share something, and I want to be careful how I share it because I want it to come across the right way. Two Sundays ago on State of the Union Sunday, I gave some numbers. I rattled off some numbers about the state of our church in the last year. And two of those numbers are of particular interest to me. One is the observance that on average, we count adults and youth, the people in this room, we have an average Sunday attendance at worship service of 183 people. And this crazy number, but a total of 209 people who served. Now, some churches would accuse us of inflating the numbers, creating phantom people. It's not true. 209 distinct real-life human beings who could reasonably say Harvest is their church have served. And yet, only 183 of us come here on Sundays on average. I think those two numbers tell a story. Don't you? Maybe a photo will help tell the story. This is a photo I shot from the front of the room in the last seconds of the countdown on Sunday, December 2nd, just four weeks ago. This is what the room looked like at the start of our worship service. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, fourteen, fifteen. I think I see 15 people seated at 10 o'clock. I'm going to say this in the same gentle, loving spirit with which Jesus spoke to Martha. 
I affirm that we are a church that is more than willing to lend a hand. You are a remarkably generous and hardworking congregation. But what this picture and what our numbers tell is a story of a congregation that behaves more like Martha than Mary, that prefers to get up and do something for Jesus than to sit down at his feet, gaze into his face, and worship him. Now, that may be overstating the thing because I think there are a lot of people who do both. But I want to just issue a loving challenge. No church can sustain its ministry or remain alive and fruitful if our worship commitment doesn't match our serving commitment. Sooner or later, your drive to make a difference will turn on you and produce bitterness. You will become bitter at the people who are working against you, your enemies. You will be bitter at the people who aren't doing enough to help you. You're non-participants like Mary. What's going on? After a while, your hyper-emphasis on working for God will begin to destroy the work of God in you. And you will be so fixated on the difference you're making, you will stop giving Jesus the opportunity to make a big difference in you. I've seen this happen to a lot of people, and I have had this happen to me a number of times. And the thing is, I think it's easier for most of us to do something than to reflect and gaze and worship in stillness. It's just the way that our culture is wired. I want to challenge us with one single-minded invitation for 2019. And that is to recommit ourselves wholeheartedly to the worship of Jesus Christ to pursuing God with all intentionality and purpose. That rather than focusing on what you're doing for God, I don't mean stop, quit your ministry. I'm not saying to you, trailer team, I'm quitting because I was told, just worship. It's your instinct to serve. I don't want to take that away from you. But I want you to know that eventually your service will sour if it's not matched by your commitment to worship the one whom we serve. So the single-minded, focused challenge to all of us in 2019 is worship God with your whole being. Everything that's the best of your effort, the best of your discipline, everything you have, your whole heart, give that to him in the coming year. Worship him, elevate him, gaze at him, look deep into his face, get to know him, because if you do that, everything else will start to look different. I guarantee it. Sometime after these events, Jesus will be back in the same family's home for another dinner banquet. And the occasion of that dinner party is that Jesus had just raised their brother Lazarus from death. Lazarus had gotten sick, and while Jesus was away on ministry, Lazarus died. And everyone's like, darn it. He was so close to Jesus. They were good friends. If only Jesus had come earlier... Lazarus would have lived. So Jesus, long story short, raises him from the dead. And now they're at a party. Just think about how crazy that is. You're reclining at the table eating with a guy who was dead hours ago. And Martha is overcome with gratitude and she throws another party. And in John chapter 
12, 11 and 12, it's, it records that story. And once again, Martha, it says, is rushing about serving. She was corrected, invited, but she couldn't quite overcome this bent to always be doing something. Even after he raises her brother from death, I would have just been like, just order out, get a pizza. I got to be near this guy. He just raised my stinking brother from the grave. I'm not about to be in the kitchen while this guy's in my house. But once again, Martha is rushing about, oh Lord, we got to get the... And Mary, once again, huh? here goes Mary. Not in the kitchen, not at the dining table, but now she's walking out with a little jar of very expensive perfume. And she kneels at the feet of Jesus and she pours that perfume all over his feet. And then instead of using a towel, she takes her long hair, unbounds it, and she starts rubbing his feet dry with her hair. It's a very uncomfortable, cringy sort of intimate moment of worship. Everyone else is like, what are you doing? You got to admit, if someone did that at a dinner party where you were, you'd just be a little put off. Judas Iscariot, the CFO of Jesus' crew, the guy who controlled their money, was outraged. And he, it says in John, I love how John reveals this, Judas didn't really care about the poor. He just wanted to keep the money for himself. But he shows outrage. He says, how dare you? What a waste of valuable resources. That perfume could have been sold and the money could have been given to the poor. And look how Jesus reacts. I didn't put the verse there. Let me give it to you now. In John 12, verses 7 and 8, Jesus says to Judas Iscariot, Leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. See, what he's saying is this. For days now, I've been telling you, my inner circle, that I'm going to die soon. It's necessary. It's how I'm going to redeem the world. I'm going to be put to death, and then I'm going to rise again. And he kept saying it, and they couldn't get it. Of all the people he'd been teaching, only this one woman finally got it. She wasn't just making a grandiose gesture of extravagant worship. She was doing something very theologically aware. She heard what no one else heard in his teaching, because Mary alone gazed at him intently and listened. She wasn't like, all right, finish your message already. It's getting so long. You can say that to me. That's fine. I'm just a dude. But when Jesus was speaking, she wasn't being like, how much longer is this going to be? She was listening. And what's so amazing to me is of all the men who followed Jesus, it was this woman looked down on in her society as lesser who alone saw the truth. This man is going to die soon. Someone needs to prepare him in the most honoring way for his burial. And she alone anointed his feet with perfume. See, I think it's so easy to misunderstand and miss so much about this faith if you only worship in glancing passes. I had my quiet time. Most of us have a fortune cookie Bible, right? That's about what we get out of it each day. Is one fortune cookie. Oh, that's a good verse. I'll just put it in there. If you gaze at God, he will show you things no one else can see. 
you will see what others are missing. And Jesus, forever in history now, honors this woman. This lazy, irresponsible, non-domestic responsibility-taking woman. He honors her above most other women in commemorating this. She alone heard me when I said, I must die and rise again. She alone responded in the right way. It's good to serve. But if you don't worship, you will often serve in lesser ways than what matters most. Do you worship God this way? I found that when we worship God intently, he reveals himself intently. I want to give you, uh, how are we doing on time here? I'm going to wind this down because we have a video at the end of our service that I want you to see, so I want to make time for that. I'm going to give you some practical responses, two practical things you can do to express this recommitment to worship God. The first is to commit to a Bible reading plan. I know that sounds awfully religious and to-do listy. Is that a word? But here's why I believe that's so important. There's a lot of ways to hear God speak to you, but there's no way more reliable than reading the Bible. I know that when a mentor guides you, when a wonderful preacher preaches to you, in a manner of speaking, God talks to you. We believe that in faith. But I can guarantee you that the most reliable, safest way to hear the words of God is to read the Bible. You're going to have a chance at the end of our service to commit yourself to a Bible reading plan. And this year, we're going to do it it this way. There are two plans, the same plans we gave out last year, the green plan and the yellow plan. One of them covers the whole Bible. The other covers just the New Testament depending on what you want to tackle this year, how you feel led, you can pick one of those two plans, or you can go the third option. If you are a rebel, an American, true American, you could do your own thing. Okay? You can have your own. And there are like a gazillion Bible reading plans out there. Every celebrity Christian leader has their own custom Bible plan. And you can find on version. I think there are maybe a thousand you can subscribe to, and every day they'll prompt you. Whatever plan you use, I don't care if it's one verse a day, I challenge and invite you to commit yourself to a Bible reading plan because if we do not read and receive God's word, we will live for him under a veil of less truth. We will get things wrong. We will go astray. In order to incentivize you towards this commitment, This year we're doing something a little different. We're going to have a raffle and we're going to give away three prizes. If you don't like the Bible, these three prizes are really lame. If you like the Bible, these three prizes are the kind of treat you would love to have but would not buy for yourself. When you sign up for the Bible reading plan, there are are several checkboxes. The first set of three checkboxes, you pick which option you want to be entered into the raffle for. And the second three uh, checkboxes are which Bible reading plan you're committing to. The first prize is this book by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart called How to Read the Bible Book by Book. I know it looks as thick as the Bible, (laughs) but let me tell you, if you're a serious student of scripture, this book is a godsend because it gives you a very accessible 
readable overview of each book of the Bible so you don't get lost about what it really is about. The second prize is the Jesus-Centered Study Bible in the New Living Translation. I personally own this one. I enjoy going through it in, in my daily times with God. And it is a Bible, a study Bible that focuses on the person of Jesus and his work, even from the Old Testament on. If you want to get to know Jesus better through all of Scripture, this is a great resource. And finally, thank you, Zoe. My daughter, along with many of the young ladies in our youth group, have discovered the joy of artistic journaling. And this is something most of you would probably never buy for yourself. It's the illuminated version of the ESV Journaling New Testament. Let me show you this. This is very cool. Audrey, would you open that up for me? It's upside down, actually. Thanks. In this box that is contained a paperback version of every book of the New Testament, on one page is the scripture in ESV. On the opposite page is a blank sheet for you to journal or doodle or put some inspirational quote or something so that if you love journaling, you get the word of God on one side and a blank canvas on the other for every verse of the New Testament in this. And it's the illumin- it's the upgraded extra set where the cover is gorgeous. It's gold leaf. It's just beautiful. It looks like something monks would be proud to own. That first book was like a $22 value. The study Bible is a $26 value. That box set is a $67 value. doesn't matter which one you select, but you can be entered into drawing to receive, and we will give away those three prizes next Sunday. So if you sign up for a Bible reading plan, we want to incentivize you, but also help you in that commitment with one of these tools. If you want, we will leave these out on the table where you sign up, and you can... Touch them, peruse them for yourself. I strongly encourage you, as part of your commitment to sit at the feet of Jesus in worship, read his word in the coming year. And the second commitment is this. Make time for Jesus every day. You can see how unclever I am. A child could have said these two things. But maybe that's okay. Because I realize that in any relationships that matter, even the ones with people we can see and touch every day, if we're not intentional and if we don't carve out time, we will actually not have a relationship. I once read a shocking statistic that the average American father spends less than 15 minutes of conscious engagement time with their children every day. Isn't that a horrible statistic? Maybe some of you teenagers in the room are like, I think that's my dad. I, I see him walk past me a lot. I know he's in his room doing something, but in terms of like me and him, looking, talking, breathing, his bad breath, his spittle hitting my face, just us connecting, less than 15 minutes a day. Fathers, if that makes you cringe, that's okay. We need to do better than that. Even in the relationships with flesh and blood people, if we're not intentional, that relationship will not happen. How much more important to be intentional with a God who is so much of the time invisible to us? I want you to approach this daily time with Jesus not like a task that needs to be completed, but like a get-together with a good friend. My richest devotional times are not when I have a notebook and I'm in study mode, Confucius mode, 
trying to get wisdom out of a book. I have times like that. They are very, very profitable. But my best times of personal worship, when I'm just sitting for a while with him, talking, listening, even through scripture, conversing with him. Too much prayer is talking at God. He has so much to say if we listen. I encourage you in that time you set aside every day to be with Jesus, to spend up to half that time just quietly listening. See, I think there are things he wants to say to you that your soul needs to hear. I bet you Mary wondered all her life, which one of us sisters has the right way? I never enjoyed the hustle and bustle, but sitting and listening to you, I could do that all day. Am I right? Am I okay? And Jesus said to her that day, words she needed to hear, Mary made the better choice today. How affirming for Mary, who was told she was lazy, irresponsible, inconsiderate, ridiculous. You made the right choice today, Mary. See, there are things you need to hear because other people have said toxic things to you. They're destroying you. Jesus has a better word for you than that. There are things he needs to say to you that you can only receive from him. If you find that your life is controlled by fear, I don't know what tomorrow holds. I don't know how this is going to turn out. I don't know how people are going to react. I don't know. I don't know. If you find that that fear controls you more than God can comfort you. There are things he wants to say to you you absolutely need to hear, but you cannot hear them from anyone else. Others have tried to say these things to you, but they haven't broken through because they are not God. They love you. They care about you. They're not just nagging you. They're trying to save your life, but they cannot break through. God can if you sit with him. And there are some things you need to hear because you're living imprisoned in lies and toxic words. He wants to say some things to you that will set you free. There are some things you need to see about him that you've forgotten or never known. And it's only in worship that you see. Imagine a young lady who's a gifted singer. She and her husband are just starting out their life together. She's on track to get an amazing contract, a recording contract, tours, all of it, when suddenly she becomes pregnant. She's always wanted to be a mother, to give her best to this little kid. So as she finds out she's got a daughter coming, she forsakes her dream, gives it all up to raise this little girl with her best effort. Imagine then having made a sacrifice like that. How painful it might be when her daughter becomes a teenager to say, Mom, you don't get me. You've never had any dreams. You've got no ambition. I want to see the world. What do you know about it? See, I think we do this to our parents all the time. I think we do this to God all the time. We think we know because we never really look. We never really listen. How painful to know you gave up everything for your kids' dreams to come true and they think you have no dreams. 
You know how easy it is to mischaracterize God if you never sit and gaze upon him. If you don't take time every day to know him, then the God you know will not be the true God. He will be something less. But here's the privilege we have. Especially as Americans, there's no barrier to knowing God. You can pursue him and know him. That's his invitation to each of us in the coming year. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.